Acts chapter 2. This is our last week in Acts chapter 2. I know you're disappointed. We will actually move much more rapidly into the rest of the book after this, but Acts chapter 2 has got so much. I mean, people call it the birthplace of the church. There's so much there that is so vitally important to whatever it is for a Christian to be normal. There's so much in Acts chapter 2 that informs normal in our lives. So let's read, starting in, well, let's start in verse 41, actually, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, thank you for intentionally preserving this real story that happened in lives. Thank you, God, for a reference point of learning for us. God, all of us are still learning. There's so much to learn about. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live for the glory of God? And God, I thank you for a group of people living in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago that you chose to write about their lives More importantly, you chose to write about the work of your spirit in their midst. And we want to learn from that today because, Lord, we want to be normal Christians. Normal like you say what normal is. So God, help us. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are responsive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always loved a lot that's in this passage, but one of the things that I've loved is the mentioning of a church that was filled with awe. It's nothing like coming to a church and it's boring, right? It's not like being a part of something that's boring. It doesn't capture us. That we don't walk away from it talking about it. We want stuff like that, right? How many guys want, you want to be a part of an awesome church? What do people say about your church? Man, I go to the most awesome church. Or you want to say that about your walk with God? Oh, let me just tell you, this is brimming overflow that when you get somebody to sit still, you're going to talk to them about things that are going on in your life between you and God. It's an awesome walk with God. Well, we all love awesome, right? We love to be able to experience awesome. It's why people go to a movie. There's this awesome presentation of sight and sound and storyline, and we want to get drawn into that. But most of the things in our lives that that contain awe, I don't know if we're aware that they also contain ingredients that created the awe. 
There was a process. There was a method. There was activity that accompanied that moment where awe took place. And if we're not careful, like true instant grits Americans, we can forget that awe doesn't just happen. Awe has ingredients. Right? Most of us love the, the spectacle of a fireworks show, right? You go, I mean, fireworks today are not like they were when, when I was growing up. Now, uh, now, the number of things that these fireworks can do in the sky, the colors, the way they blow up, the background, the foreground, the, the multiple explosions in each one, and, and then they put that to music, and it just becomes this compelling sight and sound, eye-ear candy event. That just a sense, of, I mean, just we're just warmed and affected by watching fireworks go off, the way in which they're designed these days. But for most of us, a, a fireworks show, you know, whether you're at a theme park or you're, you're just somebody on a 4th of July event, you, you've read the newspaper, find out where the fireworks are, you, you tend to pull up about five minutes beforehand, park your car, and get a good spot to watch. And then five minutes later, you're just ready for 10 to 15 minutes of, wow, wow, wow. I've taken pictures of fireworks. You ever take pictures of a fireworks show? I'm not sure that's the wisest thing to do because it's, it's kind of hard to really have them come out and look like anything. You're all blurry, you're all shaking and stuff, but um, I think we were at Disney World and I took pictures of, of just this incredible fireworks and sight and sound show. It was, pre- it was pretty amazing to watch. But before you and I arrive at that 10 to 15 minute window of awe, some other stuff was happening to make that all possible. Listen to this. The Grucci family runs a world-class fireworks company that began in the 1800s. They've done seven consecutive inauguration, presidential inaugurations, multiple Olympics, and significant events around the world. Anybody who's opening something major, casinos and hotels all over the world, Fourth of July events, this is the family you want doing your fireworks show. All right, well, Springfield, Massachusetts had a fireworks show for the 4th of July. Uh, Now, they do multiple-scale fireworks shows. This one that they're having done was kind of a middle-of-the-road one. It wasn't wasn't incredibly extravagant, but middle-of-the-road for them could run a 10-, 12-minute show, could run as much as $50,000 goes into this show. Here's the announcement from the Springfield website. At 9.30 p.m., fireworks by Grucci will light the skies over Springfield as they, la- as they are launched off the Memorial Bridge for all to see. According to the fireworks experts at Grucci, the star-spangled Springfield Fireworks Show is the state-of-the-art national class fireworks program, which is electronically fired from a computer-generated script featuring choreography between the fireworks and the music. It's really incredible to watch what they actually do with the music and they put it into graphics and they install the fireworks into the moments where there's the crescendos and the songs. While watching the fireworks, you might want to ponder the following interesting firework facts from Grucci. It takes them four days to set up. Six pyrotechnicians, a total of 240 man hours to set up. 28 and a half hours to choreograph the music. Actually, this stat here doesn't include handmade fireworks that these guys design with special chemicals. I, I saw a video of their, their 
factory where by hand they're mixing chemicals and putting them into this to get just the right colors to blow out of this thing at just the right moment, just the right way. That's not even included in here. 22 tons of sand are required to fill the firing batteries, right? They put these big sand basins and they bury the tubes into these sands to allow them to go in different directions and not just shoot all over the place. And they're big, long trenches that are cut and built with 22 tons of sand in them, 25 miles of wire to circuit the firing batteries. Imagine that's wires stretched from here to Laplace. Lumber needed for setup is equivalent, equivalent of that used to side an average size house. All for a 10 to 12 minute fireworks show. That quite honestly, it's pretty awesome, right, when it happens. But awe doesn't just happen. Awe has ingredients. When you and I show up for this wow moment, there's been a lot of stuff that went into preparing that. And when you and I open up to Acts chapter 2 and we get to this moment where a sense of awe filled every soul, I just tell you that awe didn't just happen. It too had ingredients. And, and we would be wise, listen, we would just be wise. Can I say it again? We would just be wise to notice if you, you know, if you sit in the room with people smoking cigars, when you walk out, you smell like what? Cigars. If you live in a world that trains itself on a daily basis to speed up activity, to make it as quick, easy, and accessible as possible, to disregard, to walk away from anything, including the website, that just won't load fast enough. You know, right years ago, you know, AOL Online, that stuff loaded, you know, you were like, this is so cool. You know, 30 seconds later, it finally pops up. But it was, oh, my gosh, this is like from China. Uh, and you were freaking out. And we're, now, if it doesn't load instantly, I'm done with it. Right? I'm, I'm on to another. Whatever you got going on, you took too long. Sorry. All right. Well, that mentality creeps into us. We start smelling like that. It gets on us. And next thing you know, in the church, awe just needs to happen. I'm pulling up, you know, I'm pulling up on Sunday morning here and I'm getting a parking spot and in five minutes I'm going to want awe to just happen. I want to walk into a church meeting. God's meeting with his people. I want awe to just happen in this meeting. I want to walk out of here like, oh man, church was so awesome. Listen, awe has ingredients and we're going to meet some of those ingredients here in this passage, because when, when God shows up in this setting and God brings the fire, and by the way, there ain't no, uh, any other source of fire but the Spirit of God. Right? You and I can gather, do, whatever. There will be no fireworks without fire. Right? There will be no awe unless the Spirit of God shows up and provides the fire, provides the power in the midst of the people of God. But when that fire comes, it wants to find flammable material. It wants to find something that's combustible so that when it gets touched by fire, flames ignite, explosions go off. A sense of awe is in our midst. So let's, 
Let's go behind the scenes to the fireworks of Acts chapter 2, and let's, let's look at the setup for awe, the ingredients involved in awe. And I'm just identifying some things that are here in this chapter, uh, mostly just here in this one passage in verse 42 and 43. But the context here, here be the first ingredient that I would say that goes into a sense of awe in the midst of the people of God. First would be leaders and core members who know something about waiting and receiving from God. Leaders and core members. Am I talking about you? I really am not talking about everybody here. My question for you, though, before I keep going here is, am I talking about you right now? Leaders and core members of the church that gathers know something about waiting on God and receiving from God. Listen, today there's this dilemma for the life of a mature Christian, for a leader in the body of Christ. There's there's so much activity in our lives. There's so much to do. There's so much good opportunities. There's so much people to get with and needs in people's lives. Even if we could write ourselves the best resume humanly possible about we just spend our time serving and caring and serving and caring for people. But to be flammable, you're going to need some time with God himself. You're going to need some time getting around the spirit of God. You're going to need some time where you're quiet and you receive and you know something about receiving from God. Remember that, that group that gathers in in Acts chapter 1, that 120, that they're, they're a bunch of fuses is what they are. They're things that God's going to light first in order to light everything else. And there's something about their lives. Right, you, you, I said this before. Let's, let's make sure we catch this in the new normal. You don't get to skip Acts chapter 1 because we love Acts chapter 2. Now, that's what we may do because we love fireworks. We just want to drive up and see the show. But Acts chapter 1 precedes Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1's got 120 people who have been hanging out with Jesus for some time now. These, these are not novices. These guys have come from all walks of life. They've, they've already answered the call of discipleship. They've walked away from businesses and family and friends and money and activity. And they've followed Christ in the most bizarre situations. They've listened to him teach. They've watched his life. They've inquired, teach us to get along with God like you do. There's something going on inside of them. In Acts chapter 1, they sit and they wait. Acts chapter 2, they get lit. And the fireworks are on their way. Listen, the, the body of Christ needs the 120. It needs mature men and women. It needs leaders in the body of Christ who are very, very flammable. You know, for those of us who are veteran Christians, you know, you've been saved 10 years or more. You're, you're kind of a veteran Christian. You, you need to be a fuse, a lightable fuse, that the Spirit of God can touch you and, and, and you begin to run your course to go ignite others. 
can, can I tell you sometimes, right, can you join me in abandoning an old normal for the sake of a new normal? An old normal in the body of Christ looks more like this. The fuses in most churches are the new Christians. They're the new converts. The people who just got saved in the past year. They're all lit. Man, there's, they're, just, they're coloring outside the lines everywhere. They're just, they're just reckless and crazy and nuts for God. They come into your small group and all of a sudden that, that meeting that was just sort of a bunch of veteran Christians staring at each other, waiting for somebody to say, for goodness sake, something different than you've said the last 28 meetings in a row. And in comes this new person and all of a sudden everybody perks up, don't they? Like, oh my gosh, look, they're excited. Oh, they, they answer the questions when the covenant group leader asks them. This is revival. Uh, they're just new converts. Can I tell you that's not normal? It's like, can you imagine God's idea is, those of you who've been walking with me 10, 20 years, I'm going to need to save some new people to relight you. Does that sound like anything you'd expect to read in the Bible? But yet that's normal for us, isn't it? Do you understand why I love reading Acts? Because it puts us in touch with new normals. I'm 10, 20 years old. I'm supposed to be the fuse tucked in the midst of people's lives, hidden up inside that charge light by the Spirit of God and then touch others and see an explosion take place in the church. Hey, can I just prepare you guys who are, you're the core members of the church plan on the North Shore. You're not just members of that church. You're the core members. You're the 120. You're the fuses for the future. Can I just, just challenge you? Do not skip Acts chapter 1 on your way to, you know, Hoping that Jeff can pull off Acts chapter 2. <laughs> you know, come on, dude. Bring it, man. Bring it. Uh, okay, the 120 of the fuses for Acts chapter 2, guys. If you're part of that church plant team, you, 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 need, you need to be prepared to get in an upper room and stagger out onto the streets of the North Shore and let people look at and see what's going on in your life and let them say, these, these people have been with Jesus. That's what a core member is. Needs to be a bunch of them here, but there's going to be a group that's going to the North Shore. So get leaders and core members who are in place and they know something about receiving from God and being with God. I think that's, that's critical to creating the ingredients for awe in the midst of God's people. Next, these passages highlight this, this element of devotion in our midst. They were devoted to several things, but it's this, this atmosphere of devotion that I want to catch. I, I called it the napalm of devotion. <laughs> too many World War II movies, I guess. You guys know what napalm is? Napalm is a very, very volatile, highly explosive, flammable substance that they would, they would actually work it into a jelly-like substance, and they load it into flamethrowers. And so, you know, you get a little bitty spark, and all of a sudden you were shooting this stuff out all over the place, and it just would stick, and flames would go everywhere. Remember one, what was it, one of the movies, one of those, uh, what was it, Robert De Niro, one of, those, one of these guys stand up in a movie. It's a war movie, and he's like a real man. He wakes up in the morning, there's bombs going off. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I just... War setting where stuff is on fire everywhere. Listen, there needs to be some smell in the church. You know, people of God are together. There's just, 
smell. This is flammable thing. The Spirit of God showed up in here. Whoo, man, somebody open a door. It's going to blow the walls out. There needs to be a smell like that. It's an atmosphere, an attitude. And it's captured in that word devotion. They devoted themselves. The Greek word actually means to continue to do something with intense effort. With the possible implication of despite the difficulty to devote oneself to, to keep on, to persist in, despite the difficulty, to keep doing something that becomes difficult, like, like reading the Bible, right? Is there anything more, no, I was going to say, is there anything more difficult than, than reading the Bible? Yes. Praying is the one thing more difficult than reading the Bible, I, I, in my opinion, right? But to persist in There was a devotion in the church that was a normal attitude in them that when things got familiar, difficult, challenging, yet they persisted in this. Oh, how we we need fresh persistence. We're a people that can sprint for a very short period of time before we become winded and want to break and want to go do something else. And yet God's calling us to be devoted let me change this word devoted for the sake of my illustration today. Let's, let's change the word devoted. Whatever you see devoted, let's call it dipped in, soaked in. Right? God's wanting to have some flammable material here. Because the, the ingredients to awe were the things that they were devoted to. They were, they were dipped in this flammable material. They were soaked in these elements so that when the Spirit of God touched them, room, there was heat and there was flames flying out of their lives and out of their gatherings. So let's, let's look at what they were devoted to. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves, right? They, they were dipped in the apostles' teaching. It's the first thing that gets mentioned. The apostles' teaching. Uh, there, were, there were no books published at that time. They were not reading a volume set of the apostles, they were sitting in a meeting with the apostles, being taught the word of God, the doctrines of truth that would form the foundations for the future of the church. So this is, this is a, a description of their devotion to the teaching ministry of the church. I think, it's, I think it's insightful. I think it's important that it's the first thing mentioned here. I think what we know, understand, and learn informs so much about our lives that you can't skip this one. You can't jump to one of the other ones. You have to have this one in place. And I, and I think that's, that's pretty clear. When I look through these passages in just a second, I'm going to race through some thoughts here in 2 Timothy. To give us this perspective, the Apostle Paul is at the end of his career. Right? We're in Acts chapter 2, church is exploding. Years later, the Apostle Paul, maybe in the 60s, maybe, maybe 40 years now after Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is going to write his last letter to a, a young pastor named Timothy. And you'd think, okay, parting words for the legendary Apostle Paul, the man who taught the New Testament church more than anybody else about how to do church, what's important, how to prepare the church for the future has got his last thoughts to be imparted to a young man named Timothy who's a pastor who's going to influence the church into the future. So whatever he's going to say here needs to sit in us with some, some rather big importance. Right? 
Right, just, just a quick thought for yourself. If I were to ask you, what, what are your favorite things about church? What's your, what's your favorite? What's the, the thing that, oh, this is my favorite? What would it be? You don't have to shout it at me, but just think about it for a second. So, is it, you know, praise and worship? Maybe it's, it's, it's the sense of friendship, familyness that we're together, and we've got people that we're relating to and caring for them. It's evangelism. You know, what it, what it, whatever your favorite is, just, just think that through. I, I just want to tell you that the Apostle, I think the Apostle Paul, I think I'm safe in saying this, and, and having a favorite doesn't mean the rest of them aren't valuable. Right? Be careful about that. I'm not saying, hey, we're going to feature this first one, the rest of them on the list aren't important. No, they, they make the Bible. They're important. But this one, I think, has some, some emphasis here. And you, see, you pick it up from Paul here. Let me just race through. Ready to sprint through 2 Timothy here? 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. I remind you, Peter, I mean, Paul is saying to Timothy, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God. Now, you'll find out if you read about Timothy's life, the gift of God has to do with teaching and preaching the word of God in Timothy's life. Fan it into flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, specifically, that's true of our lives. But specifically for Timothy... This gift was to be released from fear. It was to be empowered by the Spirit and full of love and self-control, right? That's how Paul's trying to instruct him. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, right? That's content. That's teaching content, testimony about the Lord. Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now, obviously, we have a calling to God as saved individuals, but specifically, Paul tends to focus on Timothy's calling to his function in ministry, and, and he picks up on that for himself. First Timothy 1, a few verses later, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Right, look where the emphasis is for him. Second Timothy chapter 2, Verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me, right? Teaching ministry again. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, teaching ministry again, who will be able to teach others also. So here's this transference taking place. The apostle Paul has received revelation from God. He is teaching it to Timothy. He is telling Timothy, Timothy, priority of your life and your call is that you teach what you have heard to others, and priority for those others is that they would be able to teach it to others after them. So do you see where Paul puts an enormous amount of emphasis for soaking in something in the New Testament church? The, the Christian in the New Testament church needs to be dripping, soaking in the truth of God's word. Taught, read, studied, and lived. Second Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Second Timothy 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things. It's a teaching function. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does not which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker 
who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy, of all the things that you do in your life, of all the ministry components that are important, and I hope you excel in them all, make sure you rightly do this, Timothy. It's vitally important. A few verses later, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Can you just see in that one phrase how important the word of God is? The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to take the foolishness of this world, the self-salvation of this world, the human effort of attempts in this world in the category of religion and break the back of them and make you wise for salvation, make you see God's salvation. That's what scripture does. It's pretty important. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul's still not done. This is a short book. Do you see how many times Paul's talking about this same issue over and over again? Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, which quite honestly will lead to a plethora of problems. When the teaching goes bad, the lives will go bad, Timothy. Make sure you're ready to keep people with sound teaching. Of all the problems you're going to have, whether it's individuals walking with God, whether it's purity issues, whether it's pursuit of aberrant worship practices, whether it's uh, bad ideas about marriage, whatever it may be, it will begin with unsound teaching, Timothy. That's where it'll start. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What was Timothy's ministry? teaching the word of God. Doesn't mean he didn't do other things. It doesn't mean that he didn't see other things as important and vital. But do you see why Paul, Paul's primacy and his great emphasis sounds just like Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The ministry of teaching is a huge important factor in the life of a Christian. Romans 10, verse 17, one of many verses like they just want to whet your thoughts as to how was this providing combustion for these guys? What was it doing in their lives? Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? Something was happening in these people's lives that made them flammable that made their lives so that when the the Spirit of God showed up with a spark, 
there was some quality to their lives that they became combustible. They could get launched. They could blow up in a rainbow of colors to display the glory of God. What was it? Well, they were, they were soaked in. They were dipped in teaching. The truths about who God was and what he had called them to be were deep inside of them. It mattered to them. They had been around teaching that, that was highlighted in these passages. They were receiving the profit of teaching that reproved them and corrected them. They were in meetings where their ideas got twisted by whatever the apostles were teaching. They had ideas. They had a way of life. They had pursuits. And they were in meetings that looked something like this. And God met that meeting with his power and revelation. And one of the things that happened was people were on the receiving end of being reproved and corrected. Can we, can we not make that feel like the pastor shouldn't do that from the pulpit? All right, if you don't ever do that with the word of God, then, then what? you're misusing the word of God. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for those very things. Oh, we don't want to use it that way though. We just, we just want to have a feel-good event. We just don't want to, we want to cross anybody's world. Well, well, then just don't use the Bible, I guess, you know. Let's talk TV. Let's talk sports. But God designed the scriptures to be taught. And when they're taught, when they're taught, they're going to correct. They're going to reprove. They're going to get in your face sometimes. Can I tell you, if the word of God fixes you and changes you and compels you and makes you feel like you've got to get out of this valley you're living in, you might become flammable. And then when God's spark hits you, there's fireworks and there's a sense of awe. But if you're going to stay in the trench of nothingness and wasting your life and the spark of God hits your life, there will will be no fireworks. There will be no awe in that moment. Let me just highlight this as well. With Paul's emphasis, with the emphasis here in Acts chapter 2, can, can we do something that might be radical in the charismatic Pentecostal world of which we are gladly apart? Gladly apart. No apology that I would label myself charismatic Pentecostal. I would not identify with some of the things that get said in the charismatic Pentecostal world. One of them would be this. This dichotomy between teaching and other gifts of the Spirit. Almost as though, this is the way it sounds. And if you've been in the Pentecostal world, you may have heard this, you know, almost as though the teaching gift is in the way of the other gifts. You know, if, if you just make room for the Holy Spirit, what's somebody trying to say there? Well, quit teaching so much and just make room for the Holy Spirit. Okay, listen, I understand the intention there. Make room for other dimensions of the Spirit. If you want to say it that way, I'll go with you. But to say this is in the way of the Spirit is to say this thing of the Spirit is in the way of these things of the Spirit. Because this is a ministry of the Spirit. It takes the Spirit of God for the Word of God to be taught and received. It is not a human activity. Because the people on this end couldn't make any sense of what they're saying apart from the Spirit of God and couldn't say it in the way that God wants it said apart from the Spirit of God and everybody listening couldn't receive it or catch any of it apart from the Spirit of God. Okay, this is where, I'm, let me just put a little edge on this for you. See if I can irritate a few with this thought. 
there would be some guys out there that I would strongly disagree with in the realm of charismatic Pentecostal pursuits. There'd be guys through the years that I would hear people take issue with, and I would take issue just in a different way, with, say, a guy like a John MacArthur. John MacArthur would not be a man who believes, as we do, that all of the gifts observed in, this, in the scriptures continue today as they did in the New Testament era. He would believe that a number of them, many of them, were for that period and they have ceased to function and God had something else in mind for the days ahead, different than that. And so he would lead his church out of some of those thoughts and so therefore there'd be certain dimensions of the Spirit's activity that you will not see going on in the, in, in the church that he leads. And so someone may be tempted to look at that church and go, that's not a spirit-filled church. All right, now we're going to get into what spirit-filling and spirit-baptism is as we walk through Acts. And there's some elements in that that I want to protect, I think are very important. But I think that's a very loose use of your understanding of what the Holy Spirit does in a church. You say in John MacArthur's, because he's a very effective teacher. He's imparted gobs and gobs and tons and tons of truth into the body of Christ that have served the body of Christ incredibly well. But that was all just a man, right? A man who, hey, a man in the way of the Holy Spirit. Or, or was he a man empowered by the Spirit, devoted to the apostles' doctrine, and being used just as Timothy was to be used to teach and impart these things to other men who would be able to teach them to others as well. And the Spirit of God was behind all of that. That doesn't mean I agree with him on what he has to say about aspects of the Spirit in other categories. But I just think it's, it does a disservice to the Holy Spirit's ministry to say, that's not Spirit-filled. The teaching of the Word of God is occurring and being received and illumination is happening. That's the Spirit of God causing that. Let's be really careful how we form our views of others. These guys, all right, first century church is dipped and soaked in teaching, study, being near, and being influenced by the Word of God. They were devoted as well to the fellowship. They were, they were dipped in fellowship here. And I just want to grab two quick thoughts about fellowship. One is the origin of our fellowship. Where does our fellowship come from? It comes from our shared identity in Christ. No matter what background has brought us to this moment, no matter whether you're wealthy or poor, no matter what race you are, no matter what religious experience you've had, the moment you come into Christ, the moment you identify with the life of Christ, and that life identifies with you, so the very life of Jesus Christ by the Spirit dwells in you, that same life dwells in me. So you and I have fellowship. We have something in common. That's what that word fellowship has the basis of, in common. Derek Thomas says, few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. We commonly reduce it to chattering cookies in the church hall. In New Testament times, the word fellowship meant to share in common with. Fellowship thus signals our common participation in Christ and the sense of unity this entails. The early church members <clears throat> felt a sense of responsibility toward one another. These practical expressions of care for each other arose out of a common sense of identity. They were brothers and members of the same family and were a powerful witness to the people of Jerusalem 
of what trusting Christ meant to these early Christians. I mean, can you get a picture when we said last week, these guys showed up in Jerusalem for Jazz Fest weekend. Right? It's Pentecost. It's a festival. And God designed it to be a festival. So there was a little bit of a party element. Now, festival means festival. God had designed his festivals to be a celebration of the truths of who God was and who his people were to him. So, you know, it's a little bit of a Jazz Fest weekend going on here. And these guys show up. They encounter the living God, and their heart is open, and they are pierced to the heart, and they cry out to God to be saved, and they stay in Jerusalem. That's their new address. And the 120 and the other believers in Jerusalem identify with those strangers immediately. I don't even know you, but you know my Lord, and so therefore I do know you. You ever been somewhere where you meet somebody who's a Christian? I mean, you're traveling somewhere, you're in you're in an airport, and you just, isn't it weird? I mean, I can be sitting in an in a, in a a airplane seat, you know, and you're talking to this person. I don't know where I was flying to Orlando, I think, and I saw this little family there, so I struck up a conversation with this guy and talking about his business and this and that. And, and so eventually I'm trying to, trying to find out, take his spiritual temperature, so I'm trying to, you know, find ways to climb over his walls into his life. And so eventually I do, and I find out he's a Christian, and there's this sense of, oh, hey, bro, what's up, man? Just immediately there's this, you're a Saints fan too? No way. And there's this camaraderie thing that goes on in our lives. Because the reality is I'm identified with Christ and you're identified with Christ. And we have the most important thing about our lives in common. Right? Can could I, could I say, what's the thing that defines your life as a Christian? It's Jesus Christ. The Savior who restored you to God and who is your Lord. That's the most important defining thing about your life. See, this, this, is, this is what cures racial disunity in churches. Because the idea that your, your ancestors were this and mine were this, and I can't stand you because of this and you can't. Hey, that's the least of what we have in common as Christians. If, you, if you, you're sitting in here and you still got those edgy issues of, man, people of a different race or social class, that you just kind of have this aversion to them, the thing that most defines your life most defines theirs as well. And it's made you brothers and sisters and part of the same family. That's fellowship. That's an aspect of fellowship, having Christ in common. Out of that comes an expression of our fellowship. And that, that expression of our fellowship is an atmosphere of giving. That's what you find in these passages. As soon as fellowship gets brought up, next thing you know, these guys are selling stuff and giving it to each other. You know, the Jazz Fest folks, they have a need. They don't know where they're going to stay. They don't know how to pay their bills. they got to buy some clothes. Their kids don't have any food. Somebody's like, well, I don't have any money, but I can sell this, and, and I can get you some money. And I can. That generosity immediately in their fellowship, giving toward one another was important. Ken Hughes says fellowship cost something in the early church, in contrast to our use of the word fellowship today. Fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not punching cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall, right? And, then, and you've been around church and you hear that phrase, you know, oh, so what'd y'all do? Oh, we, we got together and we had fellowship. You know, well, what did that look like? Well, you know, we were just were all on the same property. <laughs> okay, well, it's a start, you know, proximity helps. Fellowship comes from giving. True fellowship 
costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or small study group with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and go away saying, there's no fellowship there. The truth is, we will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. Do you want to have fellowship? You must be a giver. See, that's, that's an inseparable element of true fellowship in the household of God. It is people with a leaning in disposition to give to another. So I know the temptation, this is another one of those, you hang around cigar smoke, you smell like cigars. We live in a consumer culture. We are taught, as soon as we can put together a sentence, we are taught to consume things. We are taught to figure out how that there exists for me. What is it about that that I like? What do they need to do differently so that it will become what I like? And we come to church that way. And when the people aren't what we wanted them to be to us because we have been taught to be consumers and they didn't give us something to consume and make us feel the way we wanted to in the church or in the small group that we attended, we walk away and say, oh, there's no fellowship there. All right, my question for you, if you've ever said that in your life, my question for you is what did you give to those people? There's a reason why some of us may not be receiving the effect of fellowship is because we don't know anything about giving ourselves. It is the giving of yourself that opens the connection. And if you're not a giver, you're just a taker, you will not feel connected. You'll feel disconnected. Biblical fellowship is about giving to one another. Listen to this very important verse, many verses, and I tried to limit how many we would skirt off into. Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Oh, the modern church needs to hear this one. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, right? Okay, welcome. Thank you for the reality of the early church. Apparently, some people miss meetings then as well. Pastors, take it easy. It happens. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, you just learned something about fellowship right there. What does the ministry of fellowship accomplish in the life of a believer? Well, in that passage, in addition to being having things in common and giving to one another, it stirs us up. It's like this little stirring device that gets stuck inside of our lives, inside of our hearts, and it stirs things up for us, and it encourages us. So, Fellowship is a means of being stirred and encouraged. Now, let me just get rid of fellowship for a moment. If what that provides is truly meaningful, get rid of fellowship, and what are you left with? An unstirred, unencouraged condition. All right, now, start, start doing a list real quick in your mind. How many people do you know who are Christians, who are unstirred, and discouraged. 
they're probably the people you can think of who have a habit of not coming together. Isn't it weird? When you start to stagnate in your walk, you don't want to get around the church. When you get discouraged and life is heavy and you sort of have gone from this person that sees life and now all you see is this issue in your life and you're discouraged and weighted down by it and the last thing in the world you want to do is what? Get around Christians. So you stop coming to fellowship. You stop gathering with the body. Right? Can you see in the word of God the very thing you need is the very thing you're avoiding? I'm stagnating. Well, what do you need? I need to be stirred up. Well, what does God use to stir us up? Fellowship. I'm discouraged. I just don't even have it in me to go on. What do you need? Encouragement. What does God use to encourage you? Fellowship. Right? Why was it that these people were so flammable when God showed up? Because stuff like this was stirring them up. And their faith got attacked and discouragement came in and they stirred one another up. And they built up one another and encouraged one another so that when the Spirit of God came, there was fire in the midst of those gatherings. And there was awe. Listen, awe didn't just happen. It had ingredients. Move through these last couple of ones quickly. They were devoted to breaking of bread. All right, a few, few possible interpretations here. I'll throw them all out at you. Let you, let you pick. This, this is either a reference to the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, as it's referred to in the New Testament. Or it's reference to the meal that they would have together quite often. The New Testament church ate together a lot. They were taking their meals with generous hearts and gladness of heart, right? It says a little bit later. Or a combination of the two, because quite often they would celebrate communion as they celebrated a meal together. It was part of what they were doing. So one of those things is, is the right interpretation. Um, I think what's most important is this would be the epicenter. And probably only Pete Shepherdstein could teach from this passage adequately. This is the epicenter for a little food thing. We've been around Pete. Everything we do, he wants to turn into a little food thing. And quite honestly, actually, you can, you can make a strong case for that from the New Testament. I'm not going to teach him how to do that but because he'll just <laughs> nag us all the more to turn everything into a food thing. But eating together with other Christians in the New Testament was a very important thing. There was something about the connectedness of life that came together around a meal. So that was actually a very big priority for them. So we, we do gather a lot of folks around meals here. I think we have biblical precedent to do that, and we should pursue that in our own lives as well. They were devoted also to prayer. Right? This was a community that was, that was soaked in prayer. It says soaked in the prayers. They were devoted to the prayers, you know, meaning either the variety of praying that a Christian has, uh, the types of prayers that we might pray, but also the types of gatherings for prayer. They were devoted to that, and quite clearly, they were getting together in a variety of settings. They were together in the temple, probably a bigger meeting like this. They were in house-to-house, smaller meeting like that. They had opportunities for a variety of prayer. They were devoted to the gatherings of prayer. Two or three would gather for prayer. Twenty or thirty, two or three hundred would gather for prayer. This was a church that was devoted to prayer. Listen. Uh, it's hard to get people to be devoted to prayer. 
prayer ministry is one of the most easily abandoned aspect, I think, of the, of the life of the church. But, but can you get this? Because everybody answers the question, do you want an awesome walk with God? Do you want to be a part of an awesome church? Do you, do you want to be flammable? Well, what God did to get these guys flammable was he dipped them in prayer. He dipped their lives in prayer and he submerged them in prayer and he let that soak into their lives. And then he set them in the midst and the Spirit of God came and boom. Listen, we want to show up for meetings without, without any sense of preparing for the fireworks, preparing for the awe. When the Spirit of God comes, I, I don't know that there's flammable material there. Prayer puts flammable material into our lives for the Spirit of God to ignite. Last thing that I can't help but observe in this passage. Faith filled lifestyles. Right? These guys were living a life that was a rather interesting, challenging life that took faith for them to live it. Maybe that's a culmination of the four elements that were mentioned just before it. But I wrote your outline there. More than merely attending a weekend meeting and living a reasonable moral life the rest of the week, which is what maybe much of American Christianity is, these believers did things that felt risky and required faith. They were living a life that felt risky and it demanded of them a sense of big faith toward God. Now, I already know the answer to this because I already know. I know it because I live with you guys and I know what I'm like. Most of our urgent prayers are prayers that sound something like this underneath this umbrella. Oh, God. Oh, God, you got to move and make life more comfortable. I mean, some, some form of that is what we're praying. I just want to be filled with faith, God, for you to, you to remove all sense of apprehension in my life right now. God, just do something absolutely big and amazing so that I don't feel threatened and insecure about the future. What do you think it felt like when these guys took the things that they owned and sold them? And no longer had them. Do you think before or after that felt more secure? <laughs> you know, we, we used to have wheels. Now we don't, you know. I'm sorry, babe. I, I sold a donkey. You sold a donkey? What? Uh, God's going to meet us. Well, yeah, right. You know, the, can you imagine? They were selling stuff. Now, now maybe some of the stuff was, was luxury items. But listen, some of us will pray some big prayers about God restoring the luxuries of our lives. We want to go places. We want to do things. We want to own more than one of those. And that's part of our prayer life, and we want to have big faith for that. But these, these guys live this, this liquidatable life. Their life was liquidatable. They could turn around and sell their house. They could sell their blonde. They didn't have to. God was moving in their hearts. It's not a requirement. It's not a mandate for every Christian to go sell everything they own. But God was doing stuff in their lives that their walk was a walk of faith. It took faith. I think when you start walking by faith and taking risks and reaching out to people and saying something to somebody, you're just scared to death to say it. And giving to something. And sacrificing your time and your finances in a way that you just have no idea how that's going to work. And you do it in faith. I think it makes us ignitable. Derek Thomas said, however we compute this phenomenon, 
it must be admitted that the gospel made a difference to these Christians. It wasn't simply talk. They were prepared to put their hands in their pockets and give away possessions for the sake of the community of the faithful. That's what generous giving lifestyles and fellowship produced in them. Oh, and by the way, when you see these numbers just off the charts, 3,000 were added and God was adding daily to their number, those who were being saved. Where were, where were those people coming from? They were coming from people who had been set on fire by God and who were reaching out to others and inviting others to come and see, inviting relatives and friends and strangers to come experience. And daily, those people then began to encounter God and encounter God and encounter God. I imagine in a Roman world, in perhaps a foreign city, it took some guts to say, I'm with Christ. The one that y'all crucified the one that's illegal, I'm with him, and I want to invite you to be with him. That was no small matter. That was a step of faith. All right, listen, when you, when you put these elements together, you've, you've set the fireworks display prepared for God to bring the fire and launch the church into a place of awe. All right, we started with the question, how many of us want an awesome church? How many of us want an awesome walk with God. Look at this last thought here from Ken Hughes. As the word went out, everyone was filled with awe, not just because many signs and wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I've always heard this verse taught in association with that. Like the only thing that contributed to the sense of awe was the miraculous display that the apostles were bringing as they ministered to people and supernatural things were taking place. No, no question that contributed to the sense of awe, but it was not the only contributor. But because everything worked together to bring a profound sense of God. Now, can you just go with me here for a second as I read the rest of this quote? A profound sense of God. How, how many of you guys are here this morning and you want that? in your walk. You want a profound sense of God. You don't want God at a distance anymore. You don't want God that you used to know better than you know now. You don't want God in heaven. Maybe one day I'll experience it. You want a profound sense of God now. Something like Isaiah experienced when he saw the holiness of God and cried, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Such a response is the deep reaction of a frail, fallen being standing before the true God of love and righteousness. In the early church, there was a sense of holiness, much like that which the children of Israel had when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Awe in the presence of almighty I want that kind of awareness of the presence of God. I like Daryl Bach's word choices here. He says, such activity causes all to take careful, respectful, even nervous notice of what is happening inside the community. Listen, I don't 
I don't know if too many of us on our way into this meeting were careful about our preparation for being here today, respectful, even nervously noticing what is God doing in the community of his people. Listen, it's, it's, a, it's an unbiblical, non-normal to just pull up for a fireworks show. I just can't pull up in the parking lot five minutes before and walk into this meeting and think, I'm going to see awe today. In the Bible, awe had ingredients. There was preparation by God that made the people of God go up in flames when his fire touched their lives. We cannot, we must not be a church that thinks we can ignore these things and we'll be an awesome church and I'll have an awesome walk with God. But I want a new normal, guys. I want a new normal. I want it for me. And I want it for us. So I want this to be real to us. This is not just some, hey, y'all remember when we studied the book of Acts? I want us to be able to say, do you remember when the book of Acts changed us? All right, so let's be real for a second. The probability of you experiencing awe as a Christian. So this is the last thing in your outline there. What if you could measure such a thing? Well, let's give it a shot. On a scale of one to five, maybe zero if you're in really bad shape, one being seldom, three being kind of middle of the road, five being consistent and healthy, evaluate your walk in the following areas, right? If right now you were to put a number next to those spaces, engaging the word of God through reading, study, and being taught by others, what kind of number would you give yourself? Pursuing and practicing fellowship as we just described it. Common care for one another, living towards each other, giving generously toward one another. Worshiping God affectionately through celebrating communion and other forms of remembrance. If there's one thing communion was, it was a meal of remembrance. It was an installed moment where the people of God stopped and remembered who God was and what he had done for them. That needs to happen regularly. That's why we sing for 30 minutes before when we first gather, it's, it's us remembering who God is to us. Personally praying and gathering with others for prayer. Be careful how you answer that one because I'm in a lot of the prayer meetings and I'll know whether you're there. What would you say? And taking steps of faith that feel risky and require conscious trust in God. I'm doing this, but oh God, you got to show up. I'm doing this, but I'm scared to death to do it. God, I don't know if I can do this, but I just, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to trust God. Okay, how, how descriptive of that is our lives on a daily and weekly basis? All right, here's the formula. Add these up, multiply by four. That equals the percent probability that you'll be experiencing awe in your walk. All right, I know that's stupid, right? There are no formulas like that. I've got to use my engineering degree somewhere, Okay. <laughs> I even wrote this to be careful to lest anybody walk out of here thinking, the dude, the pastor of that church thinks you can create a formula for righteousness. No, 
Here's what I wrote in your outline. Well, not really, since God is motivated by his grace and his glory and not our performance to intrude in our lives and establish his good and gracious work. That's the best news you're ever going to hear. The church in Jerusalem was a bunch of people who weren't very flammable when God showed up. But now when he did show up and he began to work in their lives, I have to be honest, he does use means when he dispenses his grace. And the means is in those four categories that we just looked at to make us flammable. All right. Do not dismiss yourself. Just stand up because I want God to want God to speak to you for a moment here by the Spirit. So, so you can just, you and God, tune into one another right now. What we've just been describing is the ingredients for being flammable. The things that God wants to soak us in so that his spirit can provide the power and the fire for his church to provide the light and the heat in this world. This is the fuel, these things that we dip in by God's wisdom and word make us flammable. My question for all of us is, what are you soaking your life in right now? What are you soaking in? Right now, in this hour of your life, in your manner of pursuit, in the mission that we're called to live, in the presence of that time frame of God's call for you, what are you, what are you soaking your life in. Get this picture in your mind. The God of glory has desired to provide light in the midst of darkness. Awesome, bright, shining, enamoring, capturing light in the midst of darkness. He says you will be lights in the midst of the world. So God is, God's building a fire. He wants it to roar and be bright and catch your attention. And he reaches to grab you and, and, and you're a log that he's going to put into that fire. What, do you, what you've been soaking in? What have you been soaking in? Are you flammable? You're soaking in stuff that's going to go up into a blazing, roaring fire and pronounce something about the greatness of God. Have you been soaking in something that's dampened who you are? And right now, when you get set in the midst of the church, you're a smoldering presence. You don't give off light. You give off smoke. Flame comes and touches your life. And week after week, you smolder. And there isn't a bright flame coming from your life. How about this morning? God says, why don't, you, why don't you soak right here in this meeting, right here in this meeting, why don't you soak your life in something risky, something that takes faith? How about right now you have the guts to step away from where you are and come forward and say, I'm a damper 
in the fire of God, and I need God's help this morning. I need God to help me. I need fuel in my life. I need to stop smoking. God, I want to catch fire for your glory. How about you take a step right now, right now where you are. God's showing you something about your life. God wants to set this place on fire. Go ahead and move out from where you are right now. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. I'm going to pray for us as a church. God would find a fresh day. God would find soaked in fuel a people who are ready for fire. God would do a work of preparing, creating the ingredients for awe. God wants an awesome church more than we want an awesome church. God doesn't want to see a smoke rising from his church. He wants to see a bright, burning light rising from his church. Oh, God, right now, Spirit of God, Lord, Spirit of God, come in this place and move in our hearts this morning. Lord, let some of us take some risky steps this morning. God, let us dip ourselves, even this morning, in, in the place of faith that it takes to live our lives. Lord, the word of God that we've had te- taught to us this morning from these passages, it reproves and it corrects us. Lord, some of us need to heed reproof and correction this morning. Lord, some of us need to take a step out of this pot of water that we're just soaking in, where flames don't touch us. We haven't been on fire for you, God. I can't remember when the last time zeal grabbed our hearts and we were overwhelmed with a sense of your presence and we were careful and a little bit nervous about the presence of God amidst the people of God. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you rescue us from these places. Lord, I thank you that you're here this morning making us to be a church. When your fire comes, Lord, there's going to be a a display that's awesome. Fireworks and colors that capture attention, sounds and explosions that rock the world, all put to the music of the grace of your Son in our midst, transforming us. Oh God, we want to be in a place where awe is in every soul. Lord, catch us, catch us this morning. Restore the awe to your church, Lord. Restore the days where we walk away from being together. We said that was awesome. Lord, restore the day when we talk about our church like it's the most awesome place that we go every week, that we look forward to it, that we build our lives toward it, that we make room because we're going to meet with the people of God. We're going to receive from the presence of God and we're going to be left affected and changed. Lord, that's the normal that we're after. So, Lord, I pray for every heart responding this morning. Lord, I thank you for the humility that stands and says, I don't don't really care what people fill in the blanks. Lord, we all know that we stand in this spot. Lord, there's too many seasons of my own life where I'm just smoldering, God. I'm I'm not a flame. I'm just the smolder of what once was. But, Lord, I thank you that there's mercies that are new every morning. There's mercies here today, God, that you have informed us. Lord, you have set a path of steps before each of us today. Place your foot here, then place it here. Place your foot upon the teaching 
of the word of God and then, then place it here into the midst of fellowship and the gatherings of God's people and no longer forsake those gatherings. Then, then place it here in the gatherings of prayer when there's faith being stirred and a calling out to God for his purposes to come to pass. Then, then place it here in the moments of remembrance where you treasure and prize the body and the blood of Christ and what it's accomplished on your behalf. Place your feet here in these steps of faith that are required for you to live this life, and I will meet you with fire that you've never known in your life. God, do that for each of the folks standing here this morning, Lord. Do that. Lord, realign our feet. Give us new steps in days ahead. Lord, may we find ourselves flammable. God, when your spirit comes in fire, Lord, may you touch our lives and set us ablaze for your glory. Lord, may there be a display that goes up from 5885 Florida Lee that's full of rainbow and sound and color that captures the attention of those who need to hear that there's light in the midst of darkness that will rescue them from their world. God, may it be that right here is the light so bright and so curious flowing from our lives. And Lord, I, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you're preparing mature believers to be fuses in the midst of this gathering. Lord, I pray for the 10 to 20 to 30-year-old Christian here. Lord, may, may we be fuses for others and not, not waiting for them to be fuses to us. God, make a new normal in our lives. God, prepare the team that's going to the North Shore. God, prepare them to be fuses that are going to light lives and create a firework display on the North Shore of what you do in the midst of your people when they gather and they walk in your ways and they're empowered by the Spirit. God, this morning, God, remind us of this day, Lord. May we remember the day Acts chapter 2 changed our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, can you... Can you please hold in prayer the, the Morris family? Some of you have been praying for Trudy and her family. Her sister uh, died on uh, Thursday, I believe it was. Um, 